One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Ben, knowing that you are not a lawyer, good news apparently you too can argue cases in federal court in Pennsylvania, even if you're not a very good lawyer. I am as up to date on my bar fees, license fees, as Rudy Giuliani is. <laughs> which is to say? Which is to say, uh, well, I, I owe none. <laughs> so actually, I'm a little bit more up to date than Rudy is because my, my non-payment is expected for a non-member. I mean, look, the non-member of the bar part was pretty good. I, I thought the real low point was whenever he told the judge that he didn't know what he meant by strict scrutiny. Um, yeah. That was really the like, cherry. I'm not a lawyer either, but even that. <laughs> How strict is your scrutiny? <laughs> the normal anyone, one. <laughs> anyone can be anything, you guys. You too can lesson. be an election lawyer, a COVID advisor, or the president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I can fly. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the firings will continue until morale improves edition. I'm Shane Harris. We could have called this the Believe and You Can Achieve edition. <laughs> like, like you know, like a slogan that you would have seen like on like a poster in your high school guidance counselor's office. Yeah, just be best, Shane. <clears throat> be best. That's, see, Melania, Rudy Giuliani is living Melania's best life. Be best. That's right. She had it right all along. She really did. <clears throat> we're going to miss her wisdom when she's gone. And we're going to yeah. miss her, her horrifying Christmas displays <laughs> of blood red trees. Is she going to actually do it this year? She girl needs to commit. Don't even do it. You trash talked Christmas. Fine. Whatever. Just don't do it this year. Come on. Right? I just... I'm waiting for, and I don't usually do gossip as a like celebrity gossip, mm -hmm. but I am really excited about the post-presidency, as it has been reported, frosty relationship between Melania and Ivanka. Mm. And I'm, I'm excited about that. Melania's going to be a single lady soon, I think. There's a gossipy prediction for you. Yeah. All right. You heard it here first. Yeah, all right. Uh, I am here with my good gossipy friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Everything is coming up roses. It, it, it is. Rose gardens, one might even say. Ah, newly yeah. designed. I wonder if Joe Biden will redesign the redesign. Uh, it's already been called for. Oh, has it? Like, put it back? Reset the rose garden? Reset the rose garden. Oof, we have high stakes fights coming, y'all. Get ready. On the podcast this week, President Trump fires the country's top election security official because he won't go along with his lies about a stolen election. Promising news about coronavirus vaccines raise important questions about who should get it first. And the president announces, or doesn't really announce, but is committing, it seems, to troop withdrawals from Iraq and Afghanistan before he heads out of town. 
Before we get to that, though, a quick housekeeping note. We will be off next week for Thanksgiving, uh, enjoying a a different Thanksgiving this year, I'm sure. Uh, But we will have a special episode for you next week, but you have to stay tuned for Object Lessons to find out more about that. So let's dive in on this week's news. President Trump on Tuesday fired Chris Krebs, the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. This is the agency that was created to combat the kinds of foreign interference that we saw in 2016 and had essentially delivered a clean bill of health on the 2020 elections, calling them, quote, the most secure in American history. Uh, Krebs's agency also rebutted false claims pushed largely by the president of voting irregularities, deleted ballots and the like, and that put him on the wrong side of the false story that Trump is trying to get people to believe. I'm going to read the tweet itself from last night because I think it's revealing. The recent statement by Chris Krebs on the security of the 2020 election was highly inaccurate in that there were massive improprieties and fraud, including dead people voting, Poll watchers, proper now, not allowed into polling locations, glitches in air quotes in the voting machines, which changed votes from Trump to Biden, late voting and many more. Therefore, effective immediately, Chris Krebs has been terminated as the director of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. He seems to really like that terminated word. Term- he likes terminated and hereby and effective yeah. immediately. They're very official. Susan Krebs is highly regarded by Democrats and at least some Republicans um, and has won praise, I think it's safe to say, throughout his tenure for being transparent about election security results, for being a professional and ultimately doing his job well. He was not a yes man or a toady, and that appears to have gotten him fired because he told the truth. So get us started by positioning this move by the president, which we should say had been expected for some days, in the context of the broader attack the president is waging on the election results as he refuses to concede. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, this is not surprising. Krebs had been telling um, sort of associates that he expected to be fired in the coming days, kind of over the past week. Um, And of course, he has, after the election, been quite vocal and I think increasingly explicit in countering the Trump administration and the president personally in sort of these false claims of voter fraud. Now, as we discussed last week and sort of whenever we talked about the NSA general counsel and what's happening at the Pentagon. Um, Krebs is a political appointee. He is one of the rare uh, officials at uh, DHS who is actually Senate confirmed. And so it's, uh, you know, it's sort of entirely within Trump's power and right to fire him. Trump also fired or uh, I guess insisted uh, upon the resignation of the number two at uh, the agency, uh, CISA, which is uh, also a political position. Um, Notably, however, uh, the number three position, the assistant director, is, uh, is a career position. And so that person uh, will now be sort of the acting director. Um, That's an intentional design choice. um, And I think speaks to uh, some pretty savvy leadership. So, you know, whenever we think about the immediate uh, sort of operational or national security consequences, you know, look, we're past the election. Um, This would have been a really, really significant and frightening event and development had it come in the weeks or days before the election, um, or even 
even in the immediate aftermath of the election. Um, you know, the idea of Trump putting somebody in that role who could seriously undermine kind of the credibility of the office or the integrity of its work. Um, I think we're far enough past that um, Krebs has done his job. Um, he has credibly been the voice that represented to the American public that um, with all available access to, you know, to in- intelligence reporting, all communications with state secretaries of state and election official, election administrators kind of at, at the line level, um, the election, uh, you know, there, there was no hacking, there was no fraud, um, right? There, there was no, uh, there's no reason to question the integrity of the system. And so I think on one hand, um, it's a reason to take a little bit of comfort, right? The, the really hard and important job, uh, part of the job is over, kind of by design, the number three at the agency um, uh, is not somebody who can be uh, easily removed. And, and this office really performed um, uh, remarkably well uh, under a lot of pressure. And, and, and Krebs deserves um, all of the heaps of praise that, um, uh, that are being sort of lavished upon him right now. Um, there's a different part of this, too, which is a pretty ugly, ugly side. And that's that, yeah, the president gets to fire him. But the president of the United States fired the chief election security official for telling the truth, for saying that elections were conducted with integrity, for saying there was not efforts to hack it, um, for not going along with the lies that the president is telling. And I know after four years, we've gotten sort of anesthetized to this. And it's like, oh, well, you know, at least he didn't fire him before and and just take comfort in that. But, you know, it's still really um, sort of alarming and disturbing. Um, That said, it is a pretty good sort of the the way Krebs was able to do his job uh, and the structure of the agency, I think is a good model. Um, whenever we think about how are we going to design uh, sort of the executive branch, um, you know, to, to restore kind of norms that Trump has has demolished uh, over, over the four years that he's been in office. And um, this sort of model of having the two top officials be political appointees um, for Krebs to very, very consciously draw all the fire. So the idea that you don't know the names um, of the other individuals at the agency is not because Krebs is a glory hog. It's because he knew that this agency was going to draw fire and he took it all on himself. And so whenever he was, you know, sort of understanding that he might be removed and they still need the agency to continue to function. And the idea that there should be political appointees at the very top, people who can be, one, um, credibly implement an administration's policy and be visible and accountable for that policy, um, can be protected in some cases by having that Senate confirmation. Um, And on the other hand, just a few levels down, down, there should be a senior executive service that can continue uh, you know, to discharge the function and carry out the mission, even whenever those political people are gone. And so um, whenever we're looking back to try and find success stories of the Trump administration writ large and of this very sort of perilous transition uh, of the moment that we're seeing right now, I, you know, this is a real place to look to, to try and learn some lessons. Tammy. Yeah, I guess... There are a couple of things that I take away from when and how this particular termination tweet came out. The first is that this, you know, this happened, as Susan said, after his job was basically done. And more particularly, you know, in the wake of his having said something very prominently and publicly that 180 degrees was contra the 
narrative that Trump himself was trying to put forward about the election. And so it really strongly um, smells like a vengeance firing rather than, you know, a firing that enables bad things to happen during the transition period. So to the extent that we have talked about that worrying possibility in other contexts, I think it's clear that Krebs is is not in that category. And I wonder how much it might say about the the approach that the White House is taking to other firings as well, you know, in the in DOD and and DHS and so on. The other point I wanted to make is about, you know, the threat that Chris Krebs was um, there to defend against. And, you know, we spoke before about the conduct of the election and also about how some of the greatest concerns going into this campaign year and this most intense campaign fall were about foreign interference and foreign disinformation campaigns. It seems as though, you know, Krebs has not only been speaking plainly, but, you know, the actions that he and the rest of the federal government took seem to have deterred slash prevented a lot of the worst of that foreign disinformation and foreign interference. And it's really great the effort that went into working with states and localities on protecting the infrastructure of election administration. But, 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 but the way in which this went down, the reason why he was fired, the narrative that the, the president and his allies continue to push is just a, a stark reminder to me that like the phone call is coming from inside the house here. The the disinformation and interference is from bad faith actors within our system. And that's not something that a federal security agency can help us defend against. Ben. So I want to say something about Chris Krebs and also about where we all were at the beginning of the Trump administration. At the beginning of the Trump administration, we had a series of debates on this show, on other shows, on the Lawfare podcast, on Lawfare itself about whether and under what circumstances people should actually take political appointments in the Trump administration. And you know, we all vacillated about it. We all thought it was complicated. And we all warned against, you know, thinking you were essential and that you had to go in because, you know, there was essential work that you could do. And, you know, over the years, we've had a lot of examples of people believing it was really important for them to be in certain positions and compromising themselves in order to be in those positions We've also had some examples of people who really did kind of to one degree or another hold down the fort. But it's fair to say that there are relatively few people whose public reputations have been enhanced by political service in the Trump administration. And one of them is actually Chris Krebs, that this is somebody who went into what should have been the most impossible job in Washington, which is to say controlling foreign electoral interference through cyber attacks or operations of one sort or another by foreign actors in the U.S. electoral system. And this is a job that Donald Trump did not want done at all. And the Trump administration, despite the president, actually did a fairly creditable job of protecting and safeguarding and working with state and local governments to actually have what turned out to be 
a free and fair election that was capable of deposing Donald Trump. And, you know, that required a lot of things, but one of the things it required was human effort and will. And Chris Krebs, I, I think, you know, we, we've talked a lot about people from John Bolton to Jim Mattis to uh, various other officials at DHS who, you know, we've scratched our heads and say, you know, what are they doing to their reputations at various times? And we've had different answers to those questions. I think it's actually worth pausing a moment and saying, you know, that Chris Krebs is sort of the extreme end of that conversation. He's somebody who went in to do a very, very hard thing in this administration, and he did it uh, with a higher degree of success than any of us would have predicted. It's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi principle. You can strike me down. I'll only become more powerful. (laughs) You know. Star Wars explains the world. He'd probably appreciate the comparison. I I think he's a a little bit more like R2-D2 than like (laughs) Obi-Wan, honestly. You know, he's a a machine who, like, with a soul who did his job. Wow. Kick a guy while he's down, Ben. No, man. He will love it. All right. All right. He's a huge Star Wars dork. And also, to the extent he's listening, nerd in general. And so he he will take it as a compliment at the highest order. I offered you a a role. Just let it be said. Pretty good (laughs) one. All right. Let's move on to some good news. When is the last time we had news that was maybe this good? I'm even afraid to talk about this. Maybe we should skip this. Two weeks ago. You know, see what you did there. Uh, There has been extremely promising news in recent days, weeks. Well, days, really. Yes. They're blending together still about a coronavirus vaccine. Two drug makers, Pfizer and Moderna, have reported vaccines that are 95 percent effective. Uh, at preventing people from developing COVID, which is a pharma. astonishing number. Yay! Yeah, see, <laughs> now you need them. Uh, it's an astonishing number. Experts had held out hope for vaccines that would be 50% effective and thought that that would be a great success and, and would herald uh, uh, us turning a corner. And these vaccines have been developed in less than a year, which blows away the previous record of developing a vaccine in five years uh, from kind of from the stop position. Both companies are moving to secure emergency use authorization from the FDA, which is a first step to rolling out the vaccines to the public. So, Tammy, this drug won't be available for everyone right away. It's going to take time to make doses and distribute them. In some cases, people might have to have two doses. Let's look at this question, though, through a national security lens. In this country, who needs to get the vaccine first to help fight the pandemic? And we'll also tackle the question of how should we be making decisions internationally on which countries get it first? Yeah, well, I I think you're asking the big questions, Shane. And part of the challenge is that we don't right now have coordinated authoritative mechanisms to answer those questions. I mean, just taking the two uh, vaccine manufacturers whose fantastic results have been reported in the past week, Moderna and Pfizer, Pfizer is not part of the so-called Operation Warp Speed that the Trump administration set up. Um, They did make a separate contract with the United States that the U.S. government would purchase a certain number of doses of the vaccine, but they also have similar agreements with four or five other countries. And so, you know, whatever, however they manage to ramp up their production, only about half of that 
production is going to make its way to the United States. Moderna is part of Warp Speed, and so I think they're sort of on the hook to to give the U.S. government first crack. But you know, this this gets to the challenges of equity and uh, what's good policy in vaccine distribution and who decides. So. I think the the sort of initial thinking in the federal government has been, I think, rightly, that the U.S. military has logistics capability that could be helpful in distributing large amounts of vaccine quickly to different parts of the country. But you have the problem of scaling up manufacturing using facilities that are really specialized. And, you know, both of these vaccines are RNA vaccines, which have never been manufactured at a market level before. So actually, whether they can do this with consistent quality is a serious question. Who gets it first? I mean, you know, logically, you would say healthcare workers should get it first. And then maybe, you know, essential workers, essential government employees, national security sector, whatever, But I think the biggest challenge in figuring out who gets it first is the fact that right now it's going to be up to states. There is not a federal plan in place. This is part of the Trump administration's massive failure in corona response. And the fact that the Biden team has still not had its victory certified by the GSA administrator means that the transition cannot work with federal agencies to develop a federal distribution plan. So the states are going to decide who in their states gets however many doses they are able to finagle. And there are all kinds of potential inequities that could have implications for controlling the spread of the virus. Do states with hotspots get more doses than states without hotspots? Do Republican states get more doses than Democratic states? What about private channels? You know, we've seen universities and some big corporations pay cash to get testing for their own employees and their own students. Are they going to be able to do the same with vaccines? You know, imagine that like a perk of your gold status on United Airlines is that you can get a vaccine shot uh, before you get on the plane, but the rest of the plane is out of luck, right? These these are some of the challenges. And I, I think we need to... We need to work on the basic understanding that we are not all safe until everybody's safe. We cannot go through a beggar thy neighbor approach to vaccinating. Yes, we need healthcare workers to be safe so that they can treat those of us who get sick. We want to care about vulnerable populations, but we really can't let the market decide this and we really can't let it be done just at the state level. And that means that the Biden transition has a huge amount of work that it really needs to get started with the federal government. And then as soon as it gets into office with the World Health Organization as well. Susan. Yeah, I would just um, sort of add to Tammy's thoughts on uh, sort of the distribution inequities. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if um, the very workers that were classified as essential and expected to work throughout the entire pandemic, uh, other, you know, not just healthcare workers, but, you know, delivery people, people who work in grocery stores, right, um, uh, who were sort of told to, to suck it up on behalf of a society, um, suddenly become viewed as far less essential when there's a vaccine on the table um, mm-hmm. in terms of prioritization 
And so, um, you know, just sort of be on the lookout for um, the difference between uh, essential workers and sacrificial workers. Um, I think that's going to be a, a sort of a big challenge um, uh, to precisely the, the questions that the Tammy flagged. Um, I also think it's an area in which um, I think we have to hope that the Trump administration's efforts might be better than they look on the outside, which of course has never really been true. So um, maybe silly to hope now, but that's that even in the very early days, uh, sort of, of of the race towards the vaccine and, and sort of lockdown measures, um, people like Bill Gates were warning, hey, you have to ramp up manufacturing capacity for a, a vaccine now. You can't just be looking for a vaccine, develop it, and then suddenly think you can turn around and, and turn it out. You have to be retrofitting these factories. You have to be thinking about this. So how many states um, uh, sort of saw that as well and have been preparing in the meantime? Um, has the federal government been um, helping to facilitate that at all? Um, or is this an area in which we haven't really been looking at it because we've been focused on failures um, you know, to distribute PPE and, uh, and, and testing and track and trace and um, uh, you know, all, all the other sort of um, debacles that have marked uh, Trump's leadership on this issue, if we can call it that. Um, you know, I, I think just fingers crossed that this is in another area in which um, the Biden team shows up on January 20th and it turns out like, yeah, a few states have thought about this, uh, you know, at, at, at a state level, but like nobody's really had their eye on the ball here at all. Um, you know, that could really, really set us back. You know, the other sort of question here is uh, how exactly the Biden team is going to uh, speak to the public with credibility in what is certainly going to be a profound disinformation environment. Um, They are going to need to convince people to take the vaccine, that it's safe, that it's effective. They might have to convince people to take multiple doses of the vaccine um, at various iterations. Uh, That's already hard to do, sort of in in other contexts. And this isn't just an area in which we're going to see sort of the ordinary, um, you know, vaccine denialism and claims that it hurts people, um, but it's going to have this really bizarre political overlay on top of all of it. And so one challenge I think that that uh, that the new administration is going to uh, face sort of on day one whether it's doing it themselves or empowering states to do it are finding people who can speak credibly and not just speak credibly to people who are already inclined to uh, trust the Biden administration they are going to have to find a way to speak credibly to people who predominantly are getting their information and, and their news from OAN and Fox News and Facebook because as Tammy said we all have none of us are safe unless all of us are safe. And so actually it is a national security imperative, you know, to, to penetrate that information ecosystem and to do so rapidly and credibly and, and to save people's lives. And I, I think that's an area in which um, separate and apart from sort of the immense challenges of just getting a vaccine, um, you know, developed, manufactured and, and distributed um, at a national level, convincing people to take it and then coming against up against these like massive hurdles. It's going to be a huge part of how quickly, you you know, we can we can turn this around and, and kind of close this chapter. Ben. Yeah, I actually think the picture is a little bit more cheerful than that. And the reason is that the vaccine is much more effective or the, the two vaccines so far are both, both much more effective than we expected them to be. And that means that we are not really in a situation in which none of us is safe unless all of us is safe. That's true if you have a 50% effective vaccine but it's a lot less true if you have a 95% effective vaccine where, you know, you can say 
I'm 95% safe because I've been vaccinated. Even if you don't want to fucking get vaccinated yourself or wear a goddamn mask. And I think the high rates of success of the vaccine actually allow us to be in a position that we couldn't quite fathom being in a month ago, which is that we can sort of say, look, you don't want to get vaccinated? Fine. We're not going to prioritize you in a, in a distribution system. You know, we're not going to spend a huge amount of energy trying to persuade people to get vaccinated. Uh, we are going to you know, obviously not do things on a on a first come, first serve basis because that, you know, you do want to focus on healthcare workers, you do want to focus on communities that are most in need. But uh, you know, one factor that you do get to consider right now is who doesn't want it. And, you know, I think that's that's a luxury of a 95% effectiveness rate that I think we actually should think about because there are communities in this country that ha- are actively not being participants in the societal response. And I think being able to take that into account is actually a good thing and frankly, a healthy thing. Damn. So I, that's a really interesting point, Ben, I think as a positive in the short term, but I don't think it's a positive with respect to economic recovery, because think about it this way. If you own a factory and half your workers decided to get vaccinated and half of them didn't, and so half of them continue to get sick and can't come to work, your factory isn't running at capacity. Multiply that across the economy, our recovery is retarded by it. So noncompliance is going to have economic effects that we don't want, that aren't in the interests of the country as a whole, and that will exacerbate inequity. Then you have the international dimension and the longer term, which is that we know this virus will mutate. Um, in fact, the vaccine manufacturers used the RNA uh, method because they think it will be most easily updatable as the vaccine mutates. Where will it mutate? Wherever it still exists. So the more populations, either here in pockets of the United States or in poorer countries around the world that don't have access to the vaccine or refuse the vaccine, the more quickly that mutation will happen and we'll all be back where we started. Yeah, I don't want to hold the vaccine, a single dose of the vaccine away from somebody who wants it while we're trying to persuade somebody who doesn't want it. All right. I want it for the record. I want it now. I want it day one. But <laughs> it's you know my what? vaccine and I want it now. I shouldn't get it day one. I should get it day 200. And I'm happy to wait for 200, but I don't want to wait for day 201 because some asshole is holding up the line saying, no, I don't want it and I won't wear a fucking mask either. I think we should like weaponize disinformation for good and spread rumors that like, oh, the coronavirus vaccine, <laughs> like, you know, it, you can, it makes your muscles bigger. It and, was invented by Trump. You it know. makes you a billionaire. There you go. <laughs> Trump vaccine. There's a Tom Waits song about this. Oh, moving on, moving on. Very interesting news. Well, maybe it's news. Maybe it's not. We're going to talk about this out of the White House, reading from my colleagues reporting uh, in the Post. The Trump administration is planning to move ahead with a significant reduction of U.S. forces in Afghanistan before President Trump leaves office 
in January, taking steps towards delivering on his long-delayed campaign promise to bring troops home from insurgent wars. Uh, We're reporting that the White House is preparing to announce as soon as this week plans to cut in half the number of U.S. troops from around 5,000 to 2,500 by the time Joe Biden assumes office in January. And the administration is also expected to announce a more modest troop production in Iraq, which would bring the military force there down from about 3,000 to 2,500 troops. So not a huge decrease. Another step that would go towards the president's goal which he's talked about since before he was elected, of winding down wars that were launched after the September 11th attacks. Ben, a lot of people see that as a very laudable goal, this sort of end to endless wars. But Trump had four years to do this. So the timing coming in a transition uh, is suspect, I think, as is the question of whether he can achieve what he says in the time frame that he has left. So putting aside that Trump refuses to concede the election and keeps pretending that he will be president on January 20th, should he put this decision to bring back troops or to draw down troops aside for President-elect Biden to deal with? And what is what is what what does he risk by not doing that? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. I I actually don't begrudge him wanting to fulfill what was a major campaign promise, I just begrudge him the almost geopolitical illiteracy with which he goes about it. And there's a reason why it's taken him four years to not get it done. And that's because uh, you can't get these things done by magic. You have to get them done through policy implementation and through, you know, military accomplishment and negotiated accomplishment, and the pieces of it aren't there. And so you can right now, and so you can force it, but you have to give stuff up to force it. So you can force a troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, but you can't force a troop withdrawal from Afghanistan without relieving the Taliban of its obligations under the agreement, without leaving the Afghan government in the lurch, without potentially leaving a whole lot of U.S. military equipment there, without creating real risk for the Afghan government, and by the way, without consigning to very dangerous situations millions of Afghan women and girls. And, and right, you can do, you can pull out of, you can order a pullout from Somalia, but you can't do it without significant risk of collapse there you know, et cetera, et cetera. So my my view is it's not that he should leave it for the next administration. He should leave it for when it can be done in a responsible fashion. And by the way, that almost certainly means leaving it for the next administration. But I don't think the principle is you lost, the decision isn't yours. The principle is there were conditions under which this was is possibly responsible to do, and we haven't met them yet. So be responsible for accepting that reality and accepting that this is a campaign promise that you made rashly. It reflected a genuine emotional feeling on your part and a part of a lot of Americans, but it's actually not that easy to do. It's his Guantanamo, closing Guantanamo, and you know, Obama got to the end of his presidency without closing Guantanamo. I'm sure he still regrets it, but it would have been wrong for him to go out of office, say, oh, and now close Guantanamo and, you know, fuck all the questions that I couldn't figure out the answers to. 
So, Ben, I actually think that's a really great comparison because one of the reasons why Trump has not been able to fulfill this campaign promise, well, one of the reasons is he just hasn't focused on it. But I think one of the reasons is very strong congressional opposition, including from his own party. And it was congressional opposition that stymied Obama from closing Guantanamo more than anything else. So it's a good comparison. I would say also, you know, Iraq is a different story. Afghanistan, though, is a case where Democrats and Republicans, anyone who has looked seriously at this situation knows there's no sort of military victory here. There's not even a diplomatic agreement that will guarantee the longevity of the post-Taliban government we set up. There is not anything the United States can do to guarantee that Afghanistan will remain stable and more successful than it was when we found it, other than keeping our troops there forever. And we're not willing to do that. The public is clearly not willing to do that. And we shouldn't be. And so the policy challenge, setting aside Trump and Biden, the policy challenge is, you know, how do you set terms for the withdrawal of American forces without, number one, undermining our own security interests, like allowing al-Qaeda or other groups to, to operate there, and without, you know, leaving behind a situation that really, you know, is worse and that we would absolutely hold a responsibility for. That, to me, is why the precipitous withdrawal that Trump is now engaged in, even though it's only partial, is so wrong. It's wrong on policy terms. It's deeply irresponsible and harmful to ending this in a way that is moral, more moral, given the available options, to ending it in a way that is protective of American interests, protective of Afghan interests, protective of our future ability to um, do things that we might need to do with the Afghans on behalf of our own security. I just think it's it's really, really deeply undermining. And then and so it's it's not about how many or when it's it's about how thoughtless it is. I mean, they they came up with a number that was a halfway number between zero and what they had, so that Trump could call it significant. It has no logic whatsoever in terms of the situation on the ground, and that means de facto it is undermining the situation on the ground. And I really deeply regret that. Iraq, I think, is different because really Trump has fucked it up in so many ways. The escalation with the Iranians has endangered our troop presence. It's endangered our diplomatic presence. It's destabilized the Iraqi government. You know, so finding a way out of that situation that's better than what we have now is going to be the work of of some time. And and by the way, we're not done with the counterterrorism business in Iraq. So to me, you know, the drawdown there is smaller and a little more symbolic, but it, it is also really probably the wrong direction altogether. Susan. You know, Tammy's comments remind me of um, a pretty hilarious tweet that our colleague Quinta Jurassic wrote at the time of the, um, the, of course, by Twitter announced withdrawal from Syria. And that's that, you know, reasonable, I, I'm getting the phrasing wrong, but, um, you know, reasonable minds can uh, uh, debate whether or not it's a good idea to leave the, the building. Um, but there's a difference between walking out the front door and jumping out like the third story window. And that this is right, once again, the, the just the precipitous and kind of thoughtless nature. Um, 
one sort of, I I guess really a question for Tammy is, you know, assuming Trump is able to sort of actually execute things on the ground before he leaves, um, is the way to understand this that, you know, it's it's a temporary thing and Biden will come in and and sort of uh, restore the status quo ex ante and then we can move from there? Or is this the kind of situation in which like once the bell is rung and the damage is done, then Biden will have to, and his new secretary of defense will just have to address the, the sort of the reality on the ground and, and move from there. Sort of how temporary in nature should we be thinking about this? Or is this like, look, you've uh, if he actually does this, and, and he certainly has the power to, you know, that's that will inflict damage that cannot be fixed after the fact. That was actually my question, too, was how much of this is Trump saying I'm bringing the troops home only to force Biden to have to put a halt to it or reverse it so that Trump can carp from the the sidelines, see Biden sent you back to war, which I mean, is just ridiculous. But I mean, that seems to me like the more kind of reptilian brain Trump play, but maybe I'm, yeah. maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, if he thinks he's setting Biden up for a policy failure, whether that means Biden has to return troops to these areas or not. But I think the practical answer to the question that you guys are posing, I mean, there's a political answer, which is once you withdraw troops, it's a high bar to get them back in unless like, you know, something's really in danger. Obama withdrew all our forces from Iraq, and it was only ISIS taking over a third of the country that that gave him justification as put them back. And boy, a lot of people were really unhappy about that at the time. So politically, it's really, really hard to reverse course. The logistical question, you know, the devil's in the details. So you say you're going to take 2,500 troops out of Afghanistan. Which troops, which units, what equipment do they have with them? Is that equipment that you can store and guard with the 2,500 who remain so that if you want to bring those units back later, their their heavy stuff is waiting there for them? Or, you know, does taking it down to 2,500 mean that there are bases and therefore equipment that you simply cannot protect? And so you either have to consolidate that equipment in a, in a secure location or blow it up which is a huge waste of taxpayer money, right? Those are, you know, those are kind of devil in the details questions that I can't answer without knowing more about what they plan to take out from where. And then the other thing, of course, is that, you know, having Trump having made the big decision and getting the headline, which is all he really cares about, the Pentagon can go ahead and do what it wants. And as we've seen from Jim Jeffries' kind of wild exit interview last week where he admitted fudging troop numbers uh, in talks with the White House to imply that we'd pulled out of Syria more than we had. You know, it's quite possible that they can, quote unquote, withdraw down a certain number without actually doing that. It was a wild interview. All right, let's go on to object lessons. Um, I will go first. Uh, I teased at the opening of the show something special, a Thanksgiving treat that we have you for all of you, the listeners. Next week, while we're off, we are going to replay the first episode of Rational Security that we recorded the day after Trump was elected in 2016, which, granted, maybe doesn't sound like the kind of thing to put you in the mood for the holidays. Oh, it's a hoot, Shane. (laughs) It's like a bunch of people at a fucking wake. (laughs) That can be fun. That can be fun. We went back and listened to it. It was grim. It's an oh. opportunity to reflect Ooh. on what we the things we are grateful for. Right. The things we carried. Things we're grateful for. It is not 2016. 
or 17. Following that, we will have a live viewing of the CNN election night coverage (laughs) four years ago. And we'll poke you with hot sticks while you're doing it. Van Jones. Yeah, yeah. It was it was fun. It was interesting going back. We got we got some things right, we got some things wrong. I think tonally we were pretty on board though. I will say though, you could you could hear like like the, the stress masquerading as optimism in all of our voices. <laughs> like it's gonna be fine. Yeah. Woo, enjoy that trip down amnesia lane, kids. Uh Ben, why don't you go next? So the other day, a horde of uh, MAGA folks and far-right people showed up in Washington to protest election fraud and the stealing of the election from Donald Trump. And a bunch of K-pop kids had this great idea, which was to flood their hashtag Million MAGA March with pictures of pancakes Now, why pancakes, I've never figured out, but it seemed like a very good idea. And uh, Tammy and I were sitting up Saturday morning, and Tammy was retweeting all these pancake pictures. And then she looked up and said, you know, this pancake meme is great, but it's making me hungry. I think I'm going to go make some pancakes. And she made a beautiful uh, batch of raspberry pancakes. And I took a picture of it and tweeted it to all the relevant hashtags. And that would have been the end of the matter, except that we were using our placemats, which made it into the photograph. And the maker of the said placemats, which is an organization called Chilowich Studios, tweeted at us that they... uh, recognized that we were using their placemats. And by the way, they loved rational security, which was cool. And then this morning, we got an email from Stephanie and everyone at Chilowich, And it read, Hi, Ben and Tamara. Narrow indeed is the overlap in the textile design and national security and foreign policy Venn diagram, but we are pleased to populate it. As longtime fans of rational security and all things lawfare, we were thrilled to see on Twitter that Chilowich plates mats can be found at Shea Wittis. Now, I just want to point out that you know these people really actually do listen to rational security if they know that we call it Shea Wittis. Thank you for supporting original design and American craftsmanship. As a token of our appreciation for all you do, we're pleased to share some digital gift cards with you. Shane and Susan, if you would be kind enough to pass this message along to Shane and Susan, we will be most appreciative just in time for the holiday season. Keep up the great work and give our best to Baby Cannon and the Corvids. Sincerely, Stephanie and everyone at Chilowich. So we don't normally do unsolicited advertisements on this show. But uh, if you send us gift certificates and prove you really listen to the show, and by the way, you make really awesome, beautiful textiles like our placemats, I am happy to do a shout out to Stephanie and everyone at Chilowich. Chilowich.com, they're beautifully textured uh, textiles, placemats, table runners, all kinds of things. Rugs made in America. Yeah, check them out. 
And you oh, know, and if you're in DC, you can buy their stuff at Tabletop. Indeed. And uh, so, uh, yeah, to Stephanie and everyone at Chillowitch, keep on listening and uh, keep on following the pancakes and the placemats that they're on on my Twitter feed. We we also are a uh, fan of Chili Witch products in this house. I'm, I'm looking at my inbox, Wittis. I don't see my gift card. It's in there. He ordered it. When? I forwarded it to you. When? At 8.37 a.m., <sighs> to be precise. How did I miss this? There it is. Tidings of joy. Oh, tidings of joy. The holidays are upon us. Susan, what's your object lesson? I hope it's so- a gift for me. It, it is not a gift for you. That's all we have time for today. <laughs> My object lesson is a, um, a slightly scoldy one. Um, and my object is the DC coronavirus numbers for this week, which are really, really high and are rising. And I know next week is Thanksgiving. And uh, it's a time when people really want to see their families. Um, if you're listening to this and um, you are contemplating going to an in-person gathering of more than 10 people for Thanksgiving, contemplating traveling, thinking that you can be the person to make an exception and find a way to do it safely, you can't. You really, really cannot. And uh, just a pleading with people to please, please take these public health advisories seriously. Um, if you care about sort of reducing the burden on the incoming administration, you should care about this. If you care about your neighbors, if you care about seeing members of your family and friends uh, next Thanksgiving, this is the one to skip people. I know that it's um, I know it's painful and nobody wants to hear that advice and everybody wants other people to take that advice without abiding by it themselves. But that is my object lesson. Stay home, eat your pumpkin pie in front of the TV and live to see next Thanksgiving, I guess. Eat your pie while you listen to an episode of Rational Security from days that you might find even darker. And listen to the depressing uh, Rational Security from 2016. Let's it's perfect. Let self make you feel better about the future. That's That's what we're here to do. You're going to have a good time. Uh, And I hope everyone has a lovely Thanksgiving wherever you are. And hopefully you're staying right where you are. But that brings us to the end of the podcast this week. Rational Security, of course, is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find, uh, apparently, we sell Chili Witch placemats now. (laughs) We should Uh, get them. We should get Chili Witch to make us like special woven rational no, security on. logos come on. To, come on. to sell on the I don't think they need us flying off the shelves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Boy, they're really signing up for that one. They're, not, they're never going to call us again. <laughs> oh my gosh. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL security. You can find us on Facebook. Of course, we're still there for now. We are not on parlor yet. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, whenever you download the podcast, please leave a rating and review. It really helps us out and helps others find the show as well. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The shoe is the show. The shoe and the show are produced by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Chris Krebs with his 83 version of the sixth classic, Mr. Roboto. Good. It works. Yeah, it yeah. Since you all say he's a robot. He has great hair, by the way. Have you ever noticed that his hair and that of Don McGann are rather similar? Oh, maybe they're the same person. Oh my God, we were doing so well. Just saying, I'm not. Is your hair is way better than Don McGann's, Chris? Just for the record, I agree. I I second. But seriously, none of your hair compares to Sophia. So just, just quit. 
On behalf of my good friends, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, we will talk to you guys live in two, live-ish in two weeks. In the meantime, have a happy Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.